Welcome back. This is Knowing God with Heart and Mind, the regular visit to the virtual church classroom at Shiloh United Methodist Church. I'm Pastor Dan, and over there is Bethany, my daughter, and she and I are going to discuss this latest book study we're doing, another C.S. Lewis classic. Um, this one is The Great Divorce, and uh, doggone it. I'm just so hooked on C.S. Lewis that I can't stop reading everything that he's written. And uh, even while we're discussing this in my walk this afternoon, I was listening to his rich, wonderful voice as he was describing the four loves. And uh, so I'm just kind of, you know, I mean... If somebody said, I'm for Paul and I'm for Apollos, and another one said, I'm a Wesleyan, and another one said, I'm a, a Zwinglian, and another one said that I'm, I'm a uh, Lutheran, you know, I probably have to say, at this point in my life, I may be a Lewisian, I think. You could be a Narnian. A Narnian, that's even better, um, now that I think about it. Um, I wouldn't mind being a Narnian. The amazing thing is, is it's not that... It's not that Jack's writing came first for me. Most of my ideas were mine for most of my life. And then I discovered him late in my life and found that there was somebody out there who had thought all of the same things about this stuff and said it so much better than I do. So there you go. So we're looking at The Great Divorce, Bethany, and this one is the... Uh, uh, this is the one that I really like, but apparently at least one of my Sunday school classes at church took my recommendation to read this book and study it, and they gave up on it. Now, I was disappointed, but I, I understand. It's a little trippy. Yeah. I don't know why this one is such a plain, it, it speaks so plainly to me. I, so, so I've already set up the premise. You weren't able to help me with that. Mm -hmm. And I already told people in a previous episode what this book is about. And so we don't have to do an introduction per se. But, but you know, the, to, to kind of further flesh out what, why this book appeals to me and why I think it will appeal to people if they do it with us in this study um, is that what I'm seeing in this book is all the different kinds of people who are never going to get to heaven because of their various personalities that, that, that force them to, you know, go against the will of God. I mean, each, each of the people, if you think about it, what this book is about, it's a short story, really. Um, it, it's, um, it's a story about someone who's in hell, mm -hmm. who gets an opportunity to make a visit to heaven. They get to heaven, and they have a sort of spirit guide. They have a person in heaven who has come all the way back from the most comfortable part of heaven in order to retrieve them and help them hopefully find their way to the best part of heaven instead of choosing to go back to hell. And, and this is the gist. And, and C.S. Lewis, Jackie, goes out of the way to say, I'm not suggesting this is what heaven is like or anything. In fact, it's pretty clear that in the Bible that hell is forever and there aren't any day passes or, or work release programs from hell. You're, once you're there, you're there. Mm -hmm. And he says that, but he doesn't, but, but he's just saying, you know, this is sort of a parable. It, it's meant to have a lesson and so you approach it like that and then you realize that Jack is the protagonist he's the one who's going on the bus ride and when he gets there he's met by his most revered uh, spiritual mentor you know somebody he really looked up to uh, George MacDonald who is is was a sort of a C.S. Lewis type author from you know, I'm thinking almost a hundred years before C.S. Lewis. And I suppose if I were the protagonist in The Great Divorce, then my spirit guide might be Jack. Mm -hmm. You know, so, so first of all, when you realize that he's meeting this person with this wonderful Scottish brogue, mm -hmm. this is a person that he expects to see 
in heaven. And this person helps him to understand what heaven really is. Mm -hmm. And this person helps him to understand by witnessing a variety of interactions with people who are exploring heaven and encountering their spirit guides and then rejecting heaven Mm -hmm. and rejecting their spirit guides. I mean, that's really the gist of the story. And so what we learn from it is all the things that inhibit us and prevent us from being fully given over to God. That's the gist of the story, in my opinion. He's, he's trying to explain not so much why, you know, he's, he's not really describing hell in the biblical sense. He's really describing earth mm-hmm. in his parable. What he's really saying is there's a whole lot of people on earth right now who are not going to get to heaven because they cannot change their fundamental problem with needing self-fulfillment you know that that whatever it is that they have to have in order to be okay things they can't accept they can't let go of unforgiveness there's a guy who who wears a bowler hat and he's an old you know big old boy and and his spirit guide is is a is a murderer who went to heaven and this guy's never going to get into heaven because he can't accept that a murderer could have been forgiven and given God's grace and gone to heaven. So yeah. he never gets in because he can't accept that God forgave someone he can't forgive. Mm-hmm. So his unforgiveness is his problem. And another one is a is a woman who won't go to heaven because uh, because that same heaven, you know, is uh, took her son away from her. And yeah. she doesn't want to be separated from her son. And, and so, uh, uh, in fact, uh, in the Four Loves... Uh, uh, Jack talks about storge love, which is the Greek version of, of the love that describes the love between a parent and a child. And, and, and he says if somebody never, ever gets out of storge love with their child, eventually they're going to inhibit their child and they're going to inhibit themselves. He basically is describing in the four loves how he created the character of that one particular woman. And, and so, so what's this book about? It's a parable, it's a story that is meant to show you why some people are hopelessly lost in a gray, selfish world, mm-hmm. and that's all their world is to them, and then when they die, they reject heaven because they kind of prefer the gray, selfish world. Yeah. Is that a fair assessment of the story according to you? I think so. So... If you stumbled over this with the last time you you looked at it because I recommended it or because you tried it on your own, understand that as we go through this story, each one of the little parables within the greater parable is meant to teach you something about the nature of a person who is resistant to God. Mm -hmm. And it does give you a little bit of a hint of heaven in a way, and that's pretty cool. So anyway, he he does he does have his beautiful uh, he does a really good job of, of uh, imagery you know I mean mm-hmm. he he makes the immensity of heaven really unbelievable you know that that uh, and spoiler there are unicorns well yes there are so unicorns. you know sounds like pretty okay place to me so basically I, I don't know I think we can do a little bit of the preface here. Okay. Um, because because I, I gave a list of characters they mm-hmm. were going to meet. Um, and, and so if we jump into the preface of the book. Now, last time I recorded, I, I urged you to go get the book. I, I encouraged you to pick up um, Alan Vermeulier's study guide so that you could follow along with that. I also encouraged you to pick up a copy of The Great Divorce and or a nice anthology or something and i even urged you to do as i have which is to get an audio recording of the great divorce um because sometimes the reason you stumble through this is because jack is another one of these great authors who gives you dialects and things and so he he is intentionally talking like the characters he's introducing you to and maybe that's hard for you to read you know, if you've ever read Huckleberry Finn or something like that, you know that Mark Twain did a, ma- a masterful job 
of capturing a, a style of speech and recording it in words and you know on paper which is really amazing mm -hmm. but it's also hard to read especially if you're not you know comfortable doing that so so maybe you get the audiobook so i'm hoping everybody listening right now has familiarized themselves with the story and they can go along with us as we read together from the story so uh, as we're going to do this, it will be around eight or nine episodes, and this is episode two, and um, basically we're going to look at, uh, scripturally, kind of going along with what the, the book says. Uh, so, so anyway, uh, it starts with... with uh, Jack kind of telling you at the beginning of the book that you can't have both heaven and hell at the same time. And he says it's either one or the other and that that should be obvious, but for most people, it's not. Now, even in his introduction or his preface to the book, he's saying something that I think a lot of Christians, at least the ones that I go to church with, don't get this. They really don't understand that you can't have one foot in heaven and one foot in hell. You can't have one foot in the kingdom of Christ and one foot outside the kingdom of Christ. You have to go in or stay out. And most people would like to live for their flesh and then apologize to God later by going to church and paying their rent. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and paying their dues. And, and some religious systems have even really cultivated that, cultivated that into a fine art. They've turned it into, you know, sin like crazy all week long, but just as so long as you go to confession, as long as you put something in the offering plate and you take the sacrament, you're good for another week, which may not be what the intention was, but that's the way people practice it. Mm -hmm. They've got one foot in heaven and one foot in hell, and you can't do that. And this is what Jack is trying to say to us. He says, evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good. So that is a really important thing to keep in mind, mm -hmm. is you can stop being associated with hell. You can stop doing evil, but you can't turn something evil into good. And I think that's a really important thing. I, I was talking with somebody yesterday who said, you know, uh, he didn't care for the fact that people will, you know, complain about how Christmas is a pagan holiday. You know, don't they understand the church and its wisdom embraced this pagan holiday and repurposed it? Well, that's a nice thought, except... If they'd repurposed it successfully, then people wouldn't keep doing the pagan things. Mm -hmm. And so maybe they are trying to turn something evil into good. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I don't want anybody to think I, I'm, I'm like a Santa hater here. I'm just saying the argument could be made that, as Jack has said, you can't turn evil into good. And so it's debatable. It's question to be considered. Because, you know, even the church that I serve is pagan in its orientation. Um, the way the worship space is laid out is right out of pagan worship and Greek and Roman um, uh, houses of worship to the false gods. Um, but, but was that done to be like the pagans or was that done because they had already figured out a setup and it's easier, you know, like... Well, and I was about to go there because, because you know, at this point you would just have to say, well, it's functional. Right. And yet, is it functional? Because, because you know, when, when I walk past the communion railing, which looks, you know, I've, I've been a juror. And so I've, I've spent several days in a row witnessing a, a trial. And, you know, there are a lot of similarities between my pulpit, the altar, and the communion rail and a judge and court and witness stand and so forth you know that, that it all looks quite a bit alike well does being influenced the choir the choir chairs look like a jury box does being influenced by the dominant culture of the time mean that it's pagan well i don't know 
and and I don't want to go off on a tangent because this you know we we promised people the great divorce, but but I'm just saying you know when you consider these things you know Jack's right, you can't turn something that's evil into good, but maybe this process at least helps you figure out what's evil, mm-hmm. you know if nothing else. So we're gonna have a series of of. Uh, well, and I get that, but also I think, like, you know, the, with, you were talking about the Christmas thing. Couldn't the argument also be made that it's a way, it, it's an attempt to bring the kingdom honor, you know? Sure. Like. Sure. Well, you know, like we told you kids growing up, we, we all said to you, you know, Santa Claus is someone who embodies the spirit of the true Christmas of the true birth of Christ Mm -hmm. because he's somebody who, who wants to give unconditionally for the sake of people who may or may not appreciate the gift. And that's Mm -hmm. what Christ does. And so that was the way we chose to approach it with you. And, you know, you grew into Christians who could discern for yourselves how to interpret that, that story. So we're going to have, if you remember back when we did mere Christianity, we, we had a, um, kind of question and answer mm-hmm. part and so i think we're gonna kind of watch the clock and we're just gonna go until we run out of time and then that way wherever we whenever we record another one we can pick up where we left off so i think we'll try to do that so uh william blake wrote the marriage of heaven and hell between 1790 and 1793 And in this book, he tells us that good and evil aren't really what we think they are. That they're different kinds of energies. And that both are needed for the world. And he says that, uh, he said that the Bible and other religious texts have been responsible for a lot of misfortune, or misinformation rather. So, his basic claim was that you know, whoever created all of this, it was a rational and reasonable thing for them to do to create heaven and hell, good and evil, uh, in order to make balance. So the first question is, why do you think humanity is constantly searching for opportunities to blur the lines between good and evil? And why is that dangerous ground? Mm -hmm. Well... Well, I don't know that, I actually, I don't know that every, humanity seems kind of like a very broad sweeping statement for that. I feel like there are people on either side of it, so there's people who are very black and white, and they don't really blur the lines as much, and you can, you know, they're the very legalistic people, but there are people who like the gray, live in the gray area, so they would argue that there isn't a distinctive good and evil. Yeah, but, but we're living in times right now yeah. where where religious organizations are dividing because some think that the Bible is subjective and uh, you know it's 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 a question of the times you're living in and mm-hmm. you know and and if Jesus were here now he would have said something different and you know and and so I mean it it is a slippery slope you get on. When you start thinking that your intellect is an adequate match for, you know, the inherent truth in scripture. Yeah, I was going to say, I think people like living in the gray area because it's a lot easier for them to justify whatever beliefs they already have. Yeah. Versus having to... Nobody wants to go through their whole life thinking they've been right about something and then find out that they've been wrong. And I think people are also very, um, you know, I think we just really like comfort. Mm-hmm. I think when it's all said and done, we just really like comfort. Yeah. And and so it's easier to to kind of live in the gray area because you don't have to decide that everything you like is good and everything you don't like is bad you know you can just sort of live in the gray and uh, you know if it's good then you try not to overindulge in it and if it's bad you try not to overindulge in it (laughs) you know and yeah yeah 
So, um, what attempts do you see in today's culture of trying to marry heaven and hell? How do you think this dysfunctional marriage has changed the culture today? Well, I think you just talked about it with things going on with the church and stuff. But, I don't know, I mean, anytime you get on, watch TV, read a current book, anything, there's a lot of things that are biblically not okay mm -hmm. that are very much normalized. And not even, not even touching on, like, the big heavy hitting things, but just, like, normalizing premarital sex. Infidelity. Living together. Yeah. Like. Um, cheating. Like, a lot of that stuff is very normal in, in media, and we see it all over the place, and we just go, oh, well, there he goes again. Mm -hmm. Like, and there, I mean, bigger, deeper things, too, but. Yeah, I mean, and and we don't really get, I don't know, we don't get shook up by it. Well, it I'm, so I'm, I'm mixing a little bit of my, you know, uh, doctrine with the author of our study and, and, and with Jack, um, and I'm tying it all together into one statement, which is this, hell is what you get. For being more concerned about your flesh mm -hmm. than the will of God and heaven is what you get because you were willing to die to your flesh and be more concerned about the will of God mm -hmm. so the blurring of lines between heaven and hell is when we try to convince ourselves that we're living within the will of God even while we're indulging our flesh in every way we can think you know you you aren't living the will of God if your flesh takes precedence over God's will mm -hmm. at different times in your life or all the times of your life. Mm -hmm. And that's really the blurring of the line is trying to say, you know, uh, I cuss a little, but I go to church. You know, um, I don't I don't know. You know, we all we all give in to the flesh. We all we all fail at times to be obedient to God's will. But a lot of people, and I think it happens in organized institutional religion especially, is that they become accustomed to a predictable pattern of lip service to God mm -hmm. that still doesn't bind them in any way so that they can't go out and indulge the flesh. So yeah, that would be mixing heaven and hell. Isaiah 5.20 um, the uh, I looked up the wrong verse, but Isaiah is he's uh, warned the nation of Israel that they were in rebellion against God, and what were they doing? Well, let me see here. I don't have enough hands, or as the British say, Isaiah. Uh, you hear my Bible pages turning, friends? That means it's real. He's one of the major prophets. He played in the majors, and then guys like Amos played in the minors. Oh. Yeah, there we go. Isaiah 520. Sorry, guys. This is just like being in the classroom with me. Um... So, so here's, here's the verse, because I think we really need to do this right. 5.20 says, um, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So, and this is... This, by the way, you know, it's, when it's spoken prophetically like that, that means it's God's word. I mean, it, it's God speaking through the prophet. And, and what does he say that they're doing? You know, that they're exchanging. They're, they're rewriting God's rules. They're, they're trying to convince themselves that, that 
whatever is black is actually white and whatever is up is really down and 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 they do all of that so that they can have what they want and what this really says to us is that God's standards never change that God is always going to be yeah up mm -hmm. and that God's black and white will always be black and white yeah so obviously Jack disagreed with the statement from Blake and he said that all good comes from God and nothing good comes from hell black and white and there can be no legitimate marriage of the two and so in Matthew 5 29 to 30 um, it says if your right eye causes you to sin gouge it out and throw it away this is Jesus talking if it, it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for you to lose your whole body thrown into hell and if your right hand causes you to sin cut it off and throw it away it is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell so so basically um, you can't take any luggage to heaven with you mm -hmm. you know uh, it's like the old, you know, naked I came into this world and naked I go out. Yeah. And, and it's really true. Um, you know, the why would it be more important to leave that right hand or right eye behind than to uh, try to take it into heaven with you? Because that's kind of the way Lewis is, is approaching it. He, Jesus says... If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, because it'd be better to go to heaven without a right hand than for your whole body to go to hell. Mm -hmm. So so Lewis is basically saying that, and he, this is setting up the premise of the book, by the right. way. This is, this is all to set up the premise of the book. So what do you think Lewis means? And I think we already discussed this. <laughs> What do you think he means when he says evil can be undone, but it cannot develop into good? Yeah, I feel like we yeah, kind we, we covered that we pretty well. That. Well, <laughs> you know, we didn't, we never claimed to have, you know, a worldwide audience and a scintillating podcast that people just wait mm -hmm. desperately to have come out. It's, it's really just a conversation about things that we would talk about if we were together drinking coffee in a classroom at church. That's the virtual church classroom. So what does Lewis say will happen if we insist on keeping hell? If we accept heaven, what will we not be able to keep? Well, hell. <laughs> You're holding the book on your lap. I know. <laughs> but I mean, that's, the, I would say the second half of that question, that's the answer. You can't keep the sinful things. Right. Which is hell. So, well, and, it, and we kind of have touched on it too. It's like the whole idea is you can't continue to be worldly and want that to be your prime time and then be absolved every Sunday morning. Yeah. Yeah, that's just it. And, and I think what really comes across in the book, and it, it, we're not there yet. We're, it's late in the story, but one of my favorite scenes is the one where George MacDonald, his spirit guide, is trying to show him where he came from. So, so he's trying to point, you know, so Lewis is the, the protagonist. He, he's been on this journey toward heaven, and he gets to the point where he's becoming more acclimated to heaven. And it sounds like there's hope for him. And, and he says, well, how far is it actually back? And they get down on their hands and the knees and they look down between the blades of grass and they find a little crack in the, in the dirt. And he says, that's the valley you came through. And, and I, think, I just think that is so cool mm -hmm. because, because what he's trying to say is the enormity of heaven so overwhelms anything of hell mm -hmm. that you know you can't there's nothing you could bring with you it, it what he's saying is is that if you could bring something from heaven from hell to heaven it would it would diminish it would be so so infinitesimal as to not exist it, mm -hmm. it just doesn't you know 
So there is no room for both. And, and really, this is so biblical because if you think about it, that's exactly what happens with God and the Garden of Eden. When a little bit of hell gets into the Garden of Eden, mm -hmm. God casts the hell out. Yeah. And then he sets big, bad, burly guards at the yeah. gates of hell. Right? And so that's the fundamental premise, you know. And uh, Okay, so, so chapter one is the nature of hell and i i still argue i wish i could i could ask jack about this whoops i bumped my microphone i i wish i could ask jack about this because i still think that what he's really describing is earth or like some kind of i mean this is gonna sound like the wrong word maybe but some kind of purgatory no 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 actually um you read enough C.S. Lewis, you'll find out he believes in purgatory. It, I think this is what that seems like. It's yeah. like a holding space. Uh, Lewis definitely believed in praying for the dead, and he believed in purgatory. But I like his concept of purgatory because it makes more sense to me. So just go figure. Jack says purgatory isn't really... He said that's not the best word for it because what he's really saying is, and, and you know what, I just finished listening to um, A Grief Observed, and it's beautiful. And one of the things that he says is how, how wrong it would be for God to, to work on you all your life and then stop working on you when you get into his presence. Yeah. It makes more sense to think that once you leave this earth and you get closer to the presence of God, the work he does on you is even more intense and that, that you don't necessarily suffer in the same way here as you did here, but you are going to suffer. You are going to have to endure. And you know what? It's there in this book because when he describes, and you know, we here we are chapter one and I'm already talking about heaven. But he describes when they get to heaven how the, the grass hurts. They mm -hmm. can't walk on the grass because it hurts. So the whole intensity of heaven and being nearer to God's presence is hard for us to take. And, and yeah, so it's pretty, yeah. Well, it's, I'm jumping ahead too, but it seems like it's harder to take for some. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and he doesn't, this isn't a Jack thing, but we sometimes refer to some people as saints, you know, and we kind of assume that that they were so much closer to heaven on earth that they got a, you know, direct and and the Catholic concept of a saint is based on the whole premise of purgatory, you know. But but the nevertheless it it sounds like, you know, Jack believes that you're gonna get every chance to be all together in the presence of God, but you're gonna have to work for it. That that even in the next uh, life, even after you die, there's going to be a certain amount of of uh, learning that you have to do, and and, uh, and a certain amount of conditioning, mm -hmm. you know. And and honestly, that makes more sense because, like I said, in a grief observed, he really makes it clear that that you know he says uh, his his beloved joy, joy, you know that that she, as far as he was concerned, was was closer to heaven already, you know, and yet he knew that, you know, and, and the last thing he would want for someone he loved is to go into God's presence and then not be taken as far as they can go into the fullness of their being. Yeah. You know, so anyway, well, we're doing that. You guys wanted to hear about chapter one, so I guess we better do that. Uh, <laughs> so the story begins with Lewis, who's our narrator. And he's, he's in the gray streets of hell where you never see anybody mm -hmm. because they're always moving away from each other because they don't like to be around each other. Mm -hmm. um, they can have everything they want just by speaking it into existence, but it isn't, it's never very good. Yeah. It's, it's always pretty lame. And um, then he comes to this place where people are gathered and apparently they can board this bus. And... So and he's intrigued because people don't gather. Yeah, so yeah. That's why he gets in line because he's like, "Hmm, what's this?" So, so describe the detail in detail: the mood, the atmosphere, the images, the depictions of the gray town. Do you find Lewis's uh, depiction of hell or purgatory accurate? 
Well, I think it's pretty clever that it's just gray. So it's not horrible. Like, if you think about the, the descriptions, if, if we go with the being hell, if you think about the descriptions people commonly associate with hell, it's, you know, fire and brimstone, horrifying, or it's oblivion, mm-hmm. which I don't think would be hell necessarily. This, I think, would be hell, and I think it's really interesting the way he does it, because like you said, everything is okay, but it's just okay. So it's like, you, you imagine craving a really good steak, and then you bite into it, and you're like... It's just bland. Oh. Yeah. Like, great. Imagine a whole like, endless existence that's just bland. It makes me think a little bit of somber town in... Oh, well. No? No, I, I'm trying to... Sombertown. Yeah, Sombertown is the name of the town in uh, Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Oh, I forgot that. And Sombertown is, like, exactly like this. It's just gray and sad and blah. Like, the, everything is just blah. Yeah, that's true. Now I'm wondering who wrote that uh, screenplay and when. <laughs> I don't know. Because maybe they read The Great Divorce. Yeah, that's interesting. Although the gray town is revealed within the context of the story to be the outer limits of hell or purgatory, for those who will eventually reach heaven, the reader is to consider this as an imaginative representation of hell rather than an accurate biblical representation of hell. So, um, how would you describe a biblical representation of hell in your own words, to a friend. I mean, what? Ugh. I mean, the Bible gives us there's there's Bible references. Yeah. You know. Um, in fact, I forgot that I had done this, and it doesn't matter how many times I move this mouse, it won't move the one on that computer. Ay ay ay. I'm gonna have to post a picture one of these days of the GHM Studios mm-hmm. here. So people could see what it's like for us when we're doing this. So, so yeah, Revelation says, They too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath, and they will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of the torment will rise forever and ever, and there will be no easy rest uh, day or night for those who worship the beast and its image. So that's Revelation 14, 10, and 11. And uh, how about you read the next one? Because it's closer to you. <laughs> okay, Second Thessalonians 1, 9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Yep, and the cowardly and the unbelieving and the vile and the murderers and the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and the liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, and that's Revelation 21, 8. And Matthew 25, 41. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Alright, so are we getting the gist here, folks? I think we are. What do you think it's going to be like in hell? Maybe some fire? A little bit of fire and a whole lot of hell. I don't know. You know, I, I uh, it's winter time here and... and uh, I build a fire in our big fireplace down in the basement almost every night. And, you know, sometimes I reach in there to rearrange the logs or poke one of them or put another one on the fire. And, you know, I can stand the heat for a few minutes. I I don't feel my skin beginning to burn or cook. And, you know, I can do that for several minutes. But can you imagine never escaping that searing, burning sensation? Mm-hmm. Um I read, I read a book, two books by Randy Alcorn several years ago. One was a fiction and the other was a nonfiction. And he, I read the nonfiction one because I was teaching a class at the church in, in a different community uh, on death because I found this, well, heaven, really. It, it was a book about heaven by Randy Alcorn. 
And I read the book and we studied it together. And I basically, you know, was intrigued because in, in this book he wrote about heaven, he says that he addresses certain things that he imagines based on scripture more thoroughly in his fiction work that he wrote. So I thought, well, then I'm going to read the fiction work. And so in the fiction work, he describes it more in depth. But what he says hell is, is to be completely cut off. You know, to be just utterly and completely cut off. That there is no sensation. There is no, uh, you're not in the presence of God, but you're not in the presence of others either. You know, like, like there's this idea that we're all going to be on the same chain gang in hell. And there's almost a sense that there would be some sort of community in that. Mm-hmm. But what he says is that the hell is just this endless agony, you know, of, of being totally cut off. All I can all I can say for sure is is that there's no way I want to be in hell. No. And and uh, you know. So so the souls that Lewis encounters while he's waiting for the, the for for the bus and getting onto the bus seem to represent various forms of sin. And what is used to what what used to be called the capital sins, or what is commonly referred to as the seven deadly sins. So associate the different personalities that he encounters in line on the bus with the seven deadly sins of mm. envy. Uh, somebody wants something that another person has mm-hmm. so bad they're willing to do anything. Gluttony excessive ongoing consumption of food and drink you know um greed the pursuit of material possessions it just feels like you have to have everything lust an uncomfortable passion or longing especially to fulfill sexual desires vanity or pride excessive view of oneself without regard to others sloth Excessive laziness or the failure to act and utilize one's talents. Wrath or anger. Uncontrollable feelings of anger and hate toward another person. These are the seven deadly sins. Do you see them in the line and on the bus? Hmm. Maybe. What happens when people are waiting in line to get on the bus is that people uh, who are back in the line you know, are jealous of the ones who are further up in the line. And so they do tricks and things and, and, and they pull all kinds of stunts to get each other out of, of, uh, line and, and progress to a further place up in the line. And and then on the bus, they fight over the best seats and, and, and they bicker with each other and they quarrel with each other. And, and some of them give up and never get on the bus because they realize they like it better back in the neighborhood where there's nobody around to bother them. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea of trying to get together with a group of people for a bus ride is just too much for them because they simply don't need this nonsense. Mm-hmm. One thing I'll say about the hell that he describes or the purgatory he describes around the vicinity of the bus stop is it's all very British. Yes. The British love their cues or their lines and, and uh, you know, they like things done in or- orderly ways and they consider it most uncouth for people to not abide by the standards of such things. and. I'm not saying Americans don't feel that way, but we don't express it the way Jack would have expressed it. He was raised at the end of an era when young men and women were taught a genteel way to be. And so he's describing anything uncivilized as being essentially the seven basic sins or the seven deadly sins. Mm Mm-hmm. So as people continue to fall out of the bus line, what principle is Lewis trying to establish regarding the town in which any real life is absent, yet there is little desire to move beyond it? So we kind of hinted at that a second ago. What's he saying about hell is, in this town is, is that nobody wants to leave it, mm-hmm. but nobody particularly likes being there either. There's just a passivity. There's a, yeah, they're comfortable mm-hmm. with they're a sense of control over their circumstances. Mm -hmm. If they don't like their neighbor, they can move on. Yeah. And the town is always growing because people are always moving away from each other. Yeah. When they're confined into a place like a line waiting to get on a bus, all of a sudden they remember how much they hate being around other people. So the, the souls complain about the bus drivers saying, why can't he behave naturally? Yeah, because he's nice. Yeah. (laughs) 
And why do unbelievers have such a difficult time relating to and understanding a believer's joy? That's pretty funny. Um, again, he was talking about that as I was listening today. Uh, Jack was talking about that in the uh, uh, in the for in in the the, uh, <laughs> the first of the four loves. Um, Storge, he says. He says, you know, when people are trapped in Storge love and then one of their family members uh, goes to college and they're the first one to go to college, everybody sort of hates them and resents them for being so smart. And if they find Jesus and they they find a form of Christianity that's really enlivening their lives and everybody resents them for it because you're messing with the status quo. Mm -hmm. And Storge is a sort of love that's built around the status quo. Um, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. So what they lack in this town is the Spirit. Mm -hmm. Don't you know? And the tousle-haired poet. <laughs> this is an interesting character. Um, and they meet on the bus. He can't imagine why the other souls would insist on coming on a bus and concludes that they would be much more comfortable at home. Mm -hmm. What parallel is there to our comfort and how we deal with sin? If we look at John, uh, 1 John 1 8, what does 1 John 1 8 say? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Yeah. And then Romans 12, 9 says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. So how do we break free from the sin of a, living in the comfort zone? Well, you know, I'd gotten pretty sedentary over this last January was the most sedentary month I've had in a long time. I can't remember a full month of me sitting as much as I did and doing nothing physical. And the other day we finally got a sunny day for the first time in well over a month. Mm -hmm. And I said, man, I got to get out of here and go for a walk. And I didn't want to, mm -hmm. and it hurt. And, but I've been getting slowly back into the habit of going for daily walks and my bones and my joints don't hurt like they did. But the first few times, mm -hmm. man, you know, so the reality is, is when you get comfortable, you get flabby and soft and your joints hurt and it takes a little bit of pain to break out of the comfort zone. So what do you think the Lewis's idea that there will be fish and chips and movies advertised in hell? <laughs> well, but again, the movie's probably blah. The fish and chips is probably <laughs> terrible. You know, just like, blah, fish and chips sounds yummy right now. Oh, yeah. But not in hell. Nope. Nope. Of course, you know they put vinegar on all of it over I there. I know they do. I'm I ain't never, mad. I'm, I've never been a vinegar person. So. It's malt vinegar. It's yummy. Yeah. Well, there you go, folks. That's the introduction or the preface to The Great Divorce in Chapter 1. And uh, we're going to... They're headed toward heaven. They're on the bus. That's right. They're on the bus, headed to heaven. And the next uh, podcast recording will be a discussion of Chapter 2 and 3. Uh, we'll see if it goes a little further. It depends on time. But the uh, fact is, is, Bethany and I have had very full schedules mm -hmm. lately. It, You know, when I said I've been sedentary, I didn't say I wasn't busy. I just haven't been busy doing anything physical. And uh, so so uh, we've been very busy, and our recording schedule's been thrown off a little. If you're, a, if you're one of our real-time listeners, you're going to notice that this one's a day late. Mm hmm and uh, we're going to try to keep up with our recording one or two at a time so that we can stay ahead. But if we don't, we appreciate your patience. And uh, as always, we really appreciate hearing from you. Um, the uh, face group, Facebook group is there. And uh, uh, I picked up the other day that from one of our former regular re uh, responders that 
because I haven't been announcing the latest episode on Facebook, they haven't been listening. So they're one of the people that click through the Facebook link. So I guess I'm going to have to figure out how to put them up on the Facebook group so that people can see them. But, uh, you know, the best way to do this is use whatever podcasting, uh, podcast uh, listening program you use, whatever app you use to listen to podcasts, you know, just subscribe. And then whenever we put a new one up, you'll get it. Yeah. Uh, I saw my mama, and she has all of them popping up on hers every time we put a new one in, and she never misses an episode. We love you, Mom and Grandma. Oh, yeah. So um, just uh, let us know how you're experiencing this. Give us some of your thoughts. It's it's fun to hear from you, and, and we just want to thank you for listening. Um, if you want to learn anything more about this, um, just Feel free to give us a buzz by going to shilohum.org, S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M.org, and follow the links. Get our app. If you go to the App Store, to the Google Play Store, and you look for Shiloh Jasper, uh, you'll find our app. It's the one that's kind of white background and a sort of blue and gray cross thingy on it. You'll know it when you see it. Get our app, and you'll be able to listen to these right through that. Uh, we do record this and upload it through podbean.com. So Podbean has an app, and you can subscribe through it. So we hope we'll hear from you. Write something in the comments or or just reach out to us, mm-hmm. and we'd be glad to hear from you. But for now, just want to wish you the, the Lord's best. So God bless you, and goodbye. Bye.